Hey, what is up everyone? Alex Kapitko here, and it's the Centered from Reality podcast. It's January 5th, I believe it's a Thursday, and here it's cold and cloudy and snowy, so I'll save you guys all my ranting BS about the weather being kind of dreary, because, you know, it seems to be about the same every day. On on a positive note to start, I'm, I'm finally watching Veep on HBO, and... I, I really like it so far. <laughs> I don't know why I've never watched it. I like politics. I like Richard Dreyfus, Not Richard Dreyfus, Julia Dreyfus. sorry. Richard Dreyfus is good too. But anyways, so I've been watching that, and it's a lot like some of the other political shows I've seen where it's supposed to be a satire and a comedy, but the more of it you watch, you kind of go, I am sure there's actually people like this that are actually in Congress right now or the vice president. I mean, especially in the Trump White House, like the more you read about just the chaos, you kind of go, this all sounds like it would check out. So, yes, I, I like the show. I think I watched like seven episodes last night. I've been sleeping horribly here in Chicago because I have that like centralized heating in my apartment and it's been like 90 in my apartment, so it's hard to sleep in that. So, been up a little bit later than I should. But anyways, also Ginny and Georgia on Netflix is out. I'm probably going to binge that, so don't judge me, but it's quite a good show. I finished Emily in Paris, so I need another guilty pleasure. So season two, Ginny and Georgia, check it out if you haven't found it quite good. But on another light note, before I get into some less light notes, I've been kind of so focused on just the cacophony of American politics and just everything happening and just how chaotic everything is and how broken American politics are, but... I actually was reading an interesting article, and I might go into this maybe later in the week because I was reading this as I was actually turning on this program to record, but I was reading in The Economist that, you know, with the energy crisis that the, that the war in Ukraine has caused for Europe, there's hope that wind power from the northern sea in Europe could actually be really important and could give the EU some sort of an industrial edge in these somewhat, you know, chaotic times here. And there's, there's a good line in, in an Economist article from today on it, and it says, Fears about the fate of European industry abound. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the ensuing gas crunch have dealt it a cruel blow. The world's largest chemical maker is shifting production away from its headquarters in Germany. Nearly a quarter of the country's revered firms are reporting to be considering moving back part of their operations. And even as energy prices have fallen back, America's Protectionist and Subsidy-Laden Inflation Reduction Act is feeding fresh worries that the industry might be lured away from the old continent. And then the article continues on later. One unlikely bright spot is the part of Europe with the grimmest weather. And then it goes into rather than hydropower in the North Sea, they could actually be talking about wind power in the North Sea. And it just goes on to talk about how strong winds and relative shallowness in the area make it a huge basin of potential energy. And you're probably wondering where the North Sea is, but this is basically that kind of open sea area between, I guess the best way I would say, between Great Britain, Norway, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, and Belgium. It's, it's a sea that's kind of on the European continental shelf, and it connects the Atlantic Ocean through the English Channel in the south and the Norwegian Sea in the north. So an interesting area, cold and windy, and that might be really good news. And apparently about nine countries near the North Sea, so mainly European countries in the UK, are planning to install uh, 260 gigawatts of offshore wind power by 2050, which, according to The Economist, is nearly five times 
that produced worldwide today, and it's enough to power all the European Union's households. So obviously, this is all just speculation right now. This is all in the planning stage, but this would be great for the European economy in places like Denmark, Denmark, sorry, or the UK or Germany or whatever. And this will put facilities out to actually store this. And as Europe is seeing an energy crisis right now, that's something positive. Of course, 2050 is not close, but I have talked on the podcast before about how the U.S. is becoming more protectionist, and if Europe wants to kind of stay afloat, they're going to need to be more creative or be reliant on other places, which, as we're learning now, reliance is not always good. You need to be somewhat independent. And so, good news. I I found that article interesting. Maybe I'll dig into it a little more, but as of now, there's just a lot of ideas and a lot of planning going on. But Anyways, I want to start with escalation potential in Ukraine, or at least some updates that happened over the New Year's weekend. And according to reports, America and Germany, that's an interesting duo in this case because we have very different interests. Anyways, America and Germany have actually agreed to send armored combat vehicles to Ukraine. This is quite interesting. Because for a long time, both of us actually have been resisting such aid because we've feared that the Russians would view it as some form of escalatory action. But according to The Economist, in quotes here, America will supply Bradley vehicles, Germany will send martyrs, and also donate a, pir- uh, sorry, a Patriot missile defense system. And I just find that sort of fascinating, especially more on Germany's side, and also kind of on ours, just because you've heard the talks of what U.S. officials think we should be doing there. Now, before I get into more of the escalatory talk, um, on a side note, and this is something kind of interesting and hypocritical and just not surprising at all, is the monstrous, just the monstrous autocrat, Vlad Putin, Vladimir Putin, he ordered something close to a unilateral ceasefire, apparently on Friday and midnight Saturday to mark Orthodox Christmas. So what, tomorrow? Yeah, tomorrow. And of course, the Ukrainians... An advisor to Zelensky personally has dismissed this as hypocrisy. I guess the Ukrainians aren't really buying buying it. I mean, there are Orthodox Christians, obviously, in Ukraine as well. But it just seems I, I can understand the skepticism and the hesitancy here just because we haven't really seen the Russians care about holidays in general. I mean, we heard reports of, you know, Western Christian Christmas happening and there were bombs going off everywhere and people doing it in darkness. So... I don't know if this is just some sort of plan to get people off their guards or what, but I sure don't buy it, and I hope they don't buy it either. So that is interesting. You kind of wonder what the Russians are planning there, but I'm also curious, though, about going back to the first part. I'm curious about this willingness to send armored vehicles to Ukraine. I know that Zelensky, what, probably a couple, two weeks ago now, more or less, came to the U.S. and asked for more aid. But I assumed really nothing was going to happen in this scenario because I've read reports that Biden has actually got into arguments and has been kind of angry with Zelensky in the past over his demands for wanting more, more, more. But that being said, I can't help but think that when Zelensky came to the U.S. a few weeks ago, it was more out of desperation than some people may have thought. The reason I say that is with winter coming, I think he, and here, I guess, but I mean, luckily it has been a warmer winter in Europe. But anyways, Zelensky does understand that the status quo is just a stalemate and there's kind of a fine line with if we keep the status quo and keep sending weapons and just keep doing a stalemate, people are going to die 
and there's going to be no outcome. So are, are you just keeping the stalemate alive? And without any victory, it's just death on both sides. And I think that might have been the reason why he met, maybe talked with Biden behind closed doors. Maybe that's why he came, because he doesn't want it to just become the stalemate that it's kind of becoming to a sense. Like, it it's obviously looking good for Ukraine, but still, it's not like Ukraine's just dominating this. They're seeing a lot of casualties and tragedies as well. And I just am glad to see this because we we have been kind of hesitant to really piss off Russia or cause any escalation, but everything we do has already pissed off Russia and I think it's smart. And also this also this report of the US sending armored vehicles along with Germany and this ceasefire that the Russians want for Orthodox Christmas does come after Russia apparently reported that on New Year's Day 89 soldiers were killed in a Ukrainian attack inside Russian territory. Now, the Russians have blamed their own soldiers for, I guess, for, I guess, tweeting out or, or ex- not tweeting out, but exposing the location. That seems like a Russian thing to do. According to the Russians, though, four U.S.-made HIMAR rockets struck the building, burying the men. The spokesman also claimed that Russian air defenses had intercepted two more incoming rockets. Now, the Ukrainians have said it was hundreds. Russians have now said 89, but anyways, it looks like the Ukrainians are becoming more emboldened and the Russians are getting a little bit more more worried. I don't know if worried is the right word, but that's kind of how I would see that right now. But there's there's just been some interesting escalations of events happening in the last couple days. And I am glad the U.S. and Germany are on the same page because we, we really haven't been for a lot of this. So I will take that as good news to start. Moving on, I guess we have to go back to the U.S., because I don't want to stay on this too long, but, well, I guess I'm not going to stay on it too long because McCarthy just keeps losing <laughs> losing these votes, and we don't actually have a lot to really report, but it just seems like everything's broken. And as of today, all I will start with saying is that McCarthy keeps offering concessions to the 20 or so Republican extremists who are blocking his election and his spot to the speakership. And it appears right now he's lost a 10th ballot of House members, and they still are not going to let him be speaker. So we're getting closer to a dozen times the votes happened. And McCarthy's body language definitely has changed. Like for a while, he kind of had this arrogant look like it's going to happen. Now he looks like he's kind of exhausted, maybe exhausted options. I don't really know. The rebels are mostly supporting this guy, Byron Donalds, who is pretty atrocious in my opinion. I guess while they were nominating him for this position, he wasn't even there. He was on Fox News doing an interview, but he's a Florida congressman who's a, you know, a MAGA, MAGA type, um, African-American guy. So I think they're nominating him to go against Hakeem Jeffries, who has the, you know, every Democrat supporting him right now. I don't know. It's very interesting. But, you know, what I will say is McCarthy keeps offering concessions to these people who clearly don't know what they want. And I I think the key takeaway here is that McCarthy doesn't understand something that's really important. And it's that the only concession these people want is that he is not speaker. (laughs) They don't want him to be speaker, right? They don't like him. He's spineless. Even Matt Gates sees through his bullshit. And that's what happens when someone like McCarthy who just wants to keep moving up positions, they don't trust him. They don't trust him. And even though he's allies with Trump, 
I, I think we're seeing an interesting kind of break inside of the GOP over what does it mean to be a Trump ally. And as much as McCarthy's worked with Trump and kissed Trump's ass and enabled Trump, I think these real MAGA people, these real election deniers see through it. And it's interesting because even Lauren Boebert's actually kind of broken with Trump's statement that they should support McCarthy. So I'm all here for it. And I've heard rumors that Steve Scalise, for example, is being eyed as the replacement for McCarthy because he's an ally of McCarthy, but is more popular with the ones that are holding out, basically. And while this is all fascinating, I must admit that I literally have no idea what these people actually want. And I think part of the problem, too, is that some of these people want different things than others. And so some of them don't like Kevin personally or think he's too moderate, even though I don't think he's moderate. I think he's just a grifter. But anyways, others want to see the spectacle. They want to be part of the spectacle. They want to, you know, audition for basically a spot on Fox News or whatever. Others just want the job themselves. Like it, Others just kind of want to burn down the house. Like There's no coordinated strategy, and it feels kind of like the early days of like when Obama couldn't get anything passed, and Boehner was always under the hot seat, and then, you know, um, what's his name? Uh, Paul Ryan in the same spot, right? This is what it seems like to me now. It's just There's just this dis, disjointed movement that just has no goals whatsoever, and... I don't really see there being an end in sight. And yesterday I talked about how this is like kind of poetic justice for the way McCarthy's been. And it's definitely been entertaining. And a lot of people are really following this, which is kind of always interesting to me. And while it's entertaining, there is a concern here. And the concern is that it seems like the House detractors who are going against McCarthy, no matter what, are just kind of willing to hold everything hostage. And that's not good. It's not good for our country at a time when we need solid public policies, legislation passed, and just ways to keep the country from economic crises, right? And really the only thing I can see that holds this group together is that they're on the far right and all of them are strident election deniers. Other than that, though, they all want different things and they seem to even understand that they aren't really going to get what they want. So that's always fun, too. There's a good article by David Graham in The Atlantic And he writes in quotes here, this isn't a simple question of conservative versus moderate. Later, he discusses that the changes the McCarthy detractors seek, in quotes, might effectively prevent the House from doing anything. But they don't see that as a problem. Stasis and refusal are tools of hardcore conservatism in their hands. And unfortunately, this is not a good thing. I'll just just say that. This is not a good thing because there's many issues that actually need to be solved soon. This kind of brings us to that paradoxical nature of the conservative criticism of government excess. Like, they talk about how government never works, but then no one asks, like, why doesn't it work? And it's usually because the same ones who criticize government always get in the way of it working. And one example of an issue that is a ticking clock, really, is the debt ceiling, right? And Graham notes in the article, the debt ceiling is one reason the outcome of the speaker vote matters. The new Congress will have to raise the debt limit or else produce a default sometime in the next few months. And of course, you know, as we know, because McCarthy has not been able to appeal to moderates to avoid this catastrophe or to appeal to radicals who want to shut down the government, it, this whole thing to me just seems like it's kind of up in limbo. And I think the other issue here is that no matter who becomes speaker at this point, they will be a victim of this chaotic of this chaotic kind of house movement right now. Like, it doesn't really matter if it's Scalise or McCarthy or 
Jar Jar Binks because at the end of the day, I mean, none of these none of these people really seem to have the ability to lead. And it's a broken party. They're definitely getting what they deserved, but it's not going to be good for the American taxpayer. And I think that's kind of the depressing thing here. And, you know, I mean, there's always the talks about there maybe being the potential for for some sort of coalition between Democrats and moderates. But as of now, I don't see that happening. But, you know, by the time the week's over, we're probably going to be at like 20 votes based on how things are going. And who knows, that could even could even be more. Who knows at this point? Moving on because, I mean, this is just such a circus. There's always something else to talk about. So I'm not going to stay on it until we know more. But moving on, the other thing I want to get into is some recent events out of Brazil. And, you know, that's the country way south of us that I keep wanting to visit. One day I will go. I hear good things, see good pictures. I don't hear good things about the politics right now, but, you know, you can't have everything good. So anyways, there's been an official change of the guard in Brazil. And I would definitely say it's for the better, even though I'm not a leftist, but it's better than Bolsonaro. And The Economist notes here, in quotes, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, who I'm going to be calling Lula, was inaugurated as Brazil's president on January 1st, exactly 20 years after he first took office. Lula plans to expand social welfare programs for the poor and to reduce deforestation, which increased under the watch of his predecessor, Jair Bolsonaro. And I think that Lula is a pretty interesting story in Brazilian politics. And he's also kind of a fascinating comeback tale in Brazilian politics as well. Basically, to add some context, he was a former union organizer, which is always interesting to see. And he was eventually the founder of the left-wing Workers' Party. Of course, I'm translating that into English because I don't speak Brazilian, or sorry, Portuguese. And that's the party with the initials of PT. And I believe he was first inaugurated January 2003, and he left office in 2010. But when he left office, he had an approval rating of 83%, which sounds absurd now in most of the countries we talk about, just, you know, based on how divided everything is. But the interesting thing is, though, once he left office, he was actually investigated and then arrested, I believe it was in 2018, and he spent 19 months in jail on corruption charges that were later annulled, but definitely took some time out of his experience, to say the least. And this was part of that great uh, car wash scandal, what, Lava Jato, I think it was called, hit a lot of South and Central America for years. And, you know, all these leaders throughout South and Central America were getting busted for this just kind of money peddling scheme, this bribery scheme. And so... Basically, Lula got out of jail and decided to get involved in politics and has had a great comeback. And he beat Bolsonaro. I remember a year ago, I was worried that Bolsonaro was just going to beat him, try to steal the election. Lula would struggle. But I think think the thing is, is that Bolsonaro has really dropped in popularity. He hasn't been as good of a leader as people had expected and they wanted change. You get inflation, COVID, all that jazz. People are like, let's try something new. So now Lula's back, but he has, he has a lot of work to do. And I'll get into that in a moment. But also, I understand that Lula's kind of been acting like president now for like a month, maybe a month and a half or two months, because Jair Bolsonaro has kind of just checked out ever since he lost. And instead of dealing with the transition of power like a man or like a good sport, The Economist writes here in quotes that Bolsonaro spent the transition sulking. 
He never explicitly conceded defeat in an election he suggested without evidence would be rigged against him, and his party tried unsuccessfully to have the results overturned. The article continues to say in quotes here, In December, while most Brazilians were watching the World Cup, hundreds of Bolsonaristas stood outside the army headquarters in Brasilia, the capital, calling for a coup. Mr. Bolsonaro decided he would rather go abroad, in Florida, on, on Inauguration Day. Now, yes, it's true. He actually left the country for inauguration and, I guess, spent the new year in Florida. Um, now, I mean, I guess the joke's kind of on him because I've, I've at least seen some videos where it looks like it's been kind of wet in Florida. Weather hasn't been great. But, I mean, first off, I do love that that's what he's done. He decided to, <laughs> decided to go to Florida, hop off to Florida for a little bit. So good for him. On a different note, though, I guess this, I mean, the sad part is this is kind of a step up from what happened in the United States when Trump lost because, hey, there wasn't a coup attempt. And instead, Bolsonaro just kind of never conceded, was a, bad so, was a bad sport, sulked, and decided to vacation to Florida during a really wet, wet summer or winter here. And I think this is kind of pathetic considering that Trump was more of a bad sport and more dangerous than a guy who is literally a veteran for a military dictatorship and seems to like fascism. But, you know, that's why we can't have nice things in the United States. It's also probably why the House is still fighting over its speaker right now. So, anyways, it is not surprising that the populist who said the election would be rigged is not handling it well. But anyways, moving on, what is more interesting is that it looks like Lula is going to be kind of struggling, a lot of economic struggles. And We'd probably have to spend an hour going into all the political ones, so I'm not going to do that today. But I do want to go into just why he needs to at least promise some of, I mean, sorry, get back at some of the things he's promised. Like he needs to deliver on some of the promises. That's what I'm trying to say. And a different article writes, his struggles are going to be difficult because, in quotes, copious pre-election stimulus spending helped boost growth in 2022. According to the central bank, it will be 2.9%, but it's expected to drop to 1% in 2023. Inflation has fallen from a peak of 12% in April to 6% in November. However, the share of Brazilians who do not get enough to eat has risen from 6% before Bolsonaro took office in 2019 to now 16%. So almost one in five Brazilians now have not gotten enough to eat. And The Economist also writes here in quotes, High inflation has also pushed up the government's borrowing costs and eroded confidence in long-run macroeconomic stability, leaving the new government with less room to maneuver in dealing with the debt burden. Now, the problem here is that long-run macroeconomic stability and the ability for government to borrow are kind of two things that, that Lula really needs for his government to succeed because there's a few things that he wants to do that all need this. Some things he wants to do are he wants to revamp a lot of social policies that were started under actually the previous administration, no, sorry, his previous administration, so back when he used to be president. But he wants to bring those back, a lot of welfare programs that Bolsonaro was not a fan of. And one of these is actually one that I wrote a paper for in my master's program when I was talking about condition-based transfer programs, kind of UBI, or in this case, conditional-based um, I'm not a fan of condition-based as much, but Lula was really popular because he, he had a scheme known as Bolsa Familia. And these were just cash transfer programs for families in need, but they had to spend them on certain goods like food, housing, etc. 
And so he wants to bring that back, which from my understanding, it was actually fairly successful. Like out of the cash transfer programs around the world, it was one of the ones that actually did help people. And kids, like education costs in rural areas went up. I mean, sorry, not went up. Um, education rates went up in rural areas, stuff like that. Lula also wants to do a subsidized housing initiative because housing is definitely another issue that needs to be addressed. And he wants a program to basically upgrade Brazil's infrastructure, and he wants to put people to work to do it. So, I mean, I think some of these things could actually be quite useful, especially in a country that I think needs that when you're looking at almost one in five people can't afford to eat. And on top of all of this, I think something really important is that Lula plans to fight back against illegal deforestation in the Amazon because I think that was actually the biggest thing from a foreigner's perspective that Bolsonaro really messed up was his just lack of care about the environment and the Amazon. And during Bolsonaro's time, I mean, just chunks of the Amazon were always, there was, I remember there was those big fires. He was horrible to indigenous people. And it's good to see that Lula wants to focus on that. But again, he needs a lot of money for this. And that seems to be a problem. <laughs> and economic issues make these programs difficult and hard to swallow for the public. I mean, he, he did say like something to the effect of during his inauguration speech that he doesn't want to tax the people for this. But then again, when you look at Brazil's kind of economic system, you wonder how he does these things without that. And what worries me is that if he doesn't deliver, this could lead to yet another backlash, which could lead to yet another like right-wing populist like Bolsonaro or whoever else that may be. And I just hope that Bolsonaro is not like Trump or like Jaws in the movie. You know, the shark goes out to sea, you think it's gone, and then it slowly starts coming back. Dun -dun 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 you know, the whole thing. So I, I wish Lula luck, but he is going to need a lot of support, and he's going to need the world economy to start turning around. But it's important that Bolsonaro is no longer there. I think one of the big takeaways from 2022 is that the illiberals – the reactionaries and the wannabe fascists didn't do well. And Brazil's at least another example of one of those type of guys losing. And when I hear that Trump is sulking and Bolsonaro is, are, is sulking as well, that's good news for everybody, in my opinion. So yes, a little bit shorter episode today. I hope you have a great rest of your evening. Stay warm. If you're in the West Coast, stay dry. It looks like it's going to be crazy out there in California. I know we're getting a bunch of snow in the Tahoe area. Jealous to be there, but I'll be there in a few weeks. So Anyways, have a great night. You can find me on Apple Podcast, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, all those other ones. Adios.